Hi guys, uh, Pastor Greg Corcoran here from Battlefield Baptist Church. Uh, pray that this sermon is a blessing, an encouragement, and a challenge to you in your walk with the Lord. Additionally, I just wanted to say that if we here at Battlefield can ever be a blessing to you, please don't hesitate to contact us. And the best way to do that is through our website at battlefieldbaptist.org. Again, I pray this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with his word, and more in love with people. Thank you, thank you so much for those wonderful songs. And here in just a few minutes, I want to encourage you to remember, remember what we just sang about as we get into our message this morning. I want to thank everybody again for a great day yesterday. Uh, I had a couple of parents come up to me and they were like, wow, we cannot believe that next week is the last game of upward basketball. And I said, I can. <laughs> I can. No, no, I'm just joking. No, it's been a, it's been a great season. And uh, uh, listen, one of the greatest things we get to do is tell young people about Jesus, right? And uh, I, I just want to commend Pastor Travis. He's done a yeoman's job, a wonderful job this year. Uh, with our halftime devotions, with our practice devotions, and uh, this past week, you know, uh, it's all known but to God, but this past week, uh, I believe there were 45 plus uh, individuals who indicated they placed their faith in the risen Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, and so, hey, we give God the glory for that. You know what? I got news for you. That's 45 more possible decisions than there would have been had we never had upward basketball. Amen. And so we give God the glory for what only he can do. And uh, man, thank you guys, all of you who have volunteered your time uh, from coaches and referees to our snack shack workers to those who actually, there is a group of people who actually come up here every Saturday right before the last game ends and they start cleaning this place. And I can tell you that is a huge, huge blessing to us. And it helps, uh, you know, many hands make uh, light work. And so we're so very thankful for everybody who has participated in, in one way or another. And if you have been praying for Upward Basketball, this abounds to your account as well. And so we give you the praise for that and give God the glory. Uh, thank you for that, rather, and give God the glory and praise for what he's done. Right. Uh, anyway, listen, let's do this. Let's have a word of prayer. I know Travis prayed, but... Uh, I want us to have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into uh, the message for today, and it's so good to see you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the songs that we have been able to sing this morning, and certainly we are reminded of our faith in Christ, and we are so thankful that you are still God, and you are still good, even in the valley. God, even in the hard times, even in the difficult places of life, you are still on your throne, and you are so, so good. Lord, we thank you for the precious blood that you said on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that when that blood is applied, whew, Lord, when that blood is applied, you have washed us and cleansed us from all sin. And so, Lord, what a wonderful, wonderful thing. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful truth from your word. Lord, I pray now that as we look at your word on really what may be considered a difficult subject, Lord, I pray that we will look with open eyes, open ears, and open hearts as you speak to your church this morning. 
And Lord, as always, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Because Lord, you are my strength and my redeemer. I give you the praise in advance for all that you'll do during this special time when we look and we listen and hear what you have to say. And we do so, and I do so, in the precious and powerful name of your son Jesus, and for his sake, amen and amen. Well, over the past few weeks, uh, the Lord has actually enabled Travis and I, we really didn't sit down and come up with like this plan, like, hey, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Uh, but the Lord has a way of working things out. And over the past few weeks, um, a few weeks ago, I talked to you and I asked the question, are you driven by love? And we looked at what the Apostle Paul had to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he talks about how the love of Christ, it holds us, it, it, it causes us to live as ambassadors for Christ. So if you're in Christ, you are an ambassador for him. And so we looked at that and we asked the question, are you driven by love? And then a couple of weeks ago, a very difficult passage of scripture, Romans chapter 1, I asked the question, uh, are you driven by truth? Because uh, there were those in, in Paul's day in Rome who were who were suppressing the truth, but that the Bible says that they had a knowledge of God, they knew God, uh, but yet they held or they suppressed the truth in ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so they didn't glorify God as God. They weren't thankful. And then uh, you remember we went through and God kind of had those levels of punishment that he issued there for those who do that. And then last week, uh, I will be honest with you, I was very blessed as Travis shared some of the staggering statistics concerning evangelism uh, among believers. He also shared and defined what it means to be lost. And uh, he looked at and shared with us a sobering picture of the destination or, or what takes place to those who are lost or without Christ. And then he challenged us all to be about the business of pointing lost people to Jesus. And, and what a wonderful message that was. And we had a wonderful time together during the invitation of corporate prayer and on and on. But here's the reality, guys. The reason we talk about are you driven by love, the reason we talk about are you driven by truth, the reason that Travis actually talked about the lost last week is because the reality is, whether we appreciate it or not, someone has said this, that to preach the good news, sometimes you have to preach the bad news. Right, so we can talk about love and the lovey-dovey feeling, and then we talk about truth, and it kind of gets a little quieter, not as many amens that week, right? And then we talk about the lost, and last week it was dead silent in this room. But the reason we do that, and the reason we talk about these things is whether we appreciate it or not, the Bible is clear, and it talks about the fact that there, as we just sang about there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. And I would be derelict in my duty if I didn't point us to what God's word has to say about these things. Truly, life and death hang in the balance for each and every one of us, whether you're gathered here or you're watching us online this morning. And so this morning I want us to consider whether hell is a subject. Is hell a subject? Is it an issue? Is it a thought? Or is hell a real place because you see if we're driven by love if we're driven by truth and we say to ourselves as was presented last week that the lost actually matter by the way if you're here this morning and you are in Christ say amen, amen. I got some good news for you you're in Christ if you said amen but here's the reality you once 
like I was lost. See, the lost matter. And so we have to ask ourselves, is hell a real place? Because see, if hell is a real place, then I think it's going to cause us to want to share the love. I think it's going to propel us to share the truth. And I believe it's going to open up a heart inside of us to be more concerned for our family members who may be this morning lost and without Christ. Maybe there's somebody in your workplace who is lost and and really doesn't have a relationship with Christ. The Barna Research Group says that among Americans, here's what it says, it says 81% of Americans believe in the concept of heaven, life after death, and the existence of God. Now that seems pretty high and I'm excited for that research. Another 9% say that life may exist after death, but they're not really certain what that looks like. And then finally, 10% contend that there's no form of life after a person dies. However, when Barna concludes and they continue their research when it comes to this topic of hell, there was no dominant view to be found in their research. In fact, only 32%, they said, actually believed that hell was a literal place or a place of torment or suffering where souls of unbelievers go after death. So there's 81% of people who... Uh, no doubt want to believe in heaven, no, want, no doubt believe in life after death and the existence of God, but only 32% believe in a literal place or a place of separation or torment or suffering for unbelievers. There's a disconnect there some way. And now, as I'm sure you've looked at the screen behind me, I know you're super, super excited about the title of this message. By the way, Unless they're just really crazy. I've never known somebody who actually gets excited or wants to preach or teach about hell. And I can tell you this no different with me. I can tell you who didn't want me to preach about hell this week. That's that dirty old rotten scoundrel, the devil. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. And he's like, nah, 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 nah. You, you're not going to preach on hell this week. How about, a, how about a, a, fresh, a fresh message on love? How about a fresh message, right? He didn't want us to talk about hell because, see, the devil knows that hell is real. And the devil knows that it's been prepared for him and his angels. And so it's a very difficult subject. And I get it. Listen, I get it. It's not a popular topic. And I'm guessing everyone here is probably in this moment saying, Why did I come to church this morning? I was looking for a fun time, a feel-good. Listen, you know, we can have a fun time because the reality of hell uh, is that there is also a heaven. And we have a Savior who, as we just sang about, died so that you and I would never have to experience a place called hell. Oh, listen, I get it. There are many reasons we don't want to discuss hell. It's not a popular topic and therefore, what typically plagues, play, uh, uh, takes place is we want to shy away from talking about subjects like this. We don't want to discuss it. And, and many times, the reason we, we don't want to discuss this or any other difficult topic is because we are fearful. But the reality is we typically are not fearful of God. We're usually fearful of man. When we say we, won't, we don't want to talk about Jesus, we don't want to talk about hell, sometimes we are fearful of man. In fact, Proverbs 29 and 25 reminds us that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And secondly, the, uh, we, we don't want to talk about hell because I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure. Now listen, I know we're sitting in Battlefield Baptist Church today. 
By the way, Baptists ain't getting you to heaven. Jesus is. All right? I know where we are. I know where I've been called to serve as the pastor. But I would dare say that in this room, if we took a poll right now and I had you write down on a piece of paper, there would be different views concerning hell even in this room. You see, sometimes I don't think we talk about it out of fear. We don't, it's not a popular topic. We don't talk about it out of fear of man. But sometimes I don't think we talk about it because we just don't believe it. We don't believe it. We're like, oh, man, we just want to preach about heaven and Jesus and love and the big warm hug from God and, and, and this. But we don't want to face the reality that there is a place of called hell. And after all, I, I'll be honest with you, if we don't believe it, I'm just going to say I think that's inconsistent. It would be inconsistent to believe what Jesus says about our salvation in a place called heaven and not believe what the Bible and what Jesus has to say about a, a place called hell. And so we're going to look at it. In a negative sense, look at the screen with me. In a negative sense, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 and verse number 4 and 5, here's what he said, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more power that they can do, but I will forewarn you. Here's what he says, I'm going to forewarn you. I'm going to give you some advice in advance of whom you shall fear. When he talks about fear, he's talking about the idea of reverencing or to be in awe of someone. And he says, fear him who which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell, yea, I say unto you, fear him. So even in this negative sense of a statement, Jesus talks about someone who has the ability to, cons to consider what comes after, after death. But in a positive sense, I want you to look at it in a positive sense, you remember what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1. Over in Revelation chapter 1 in verse number 17, he says this, he says, fear not. See, so he says, fear God, but then he says, hey, listen, fear not. He says, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And he says, I have the keys of hell and death. He says, listen, in other words, I'm in charge, and if you're in me, you don't have to worry. Aren't you excited about that? If you're a believer here, you don't have to worry. But if you're here this morning, listen, I want you to know that you are loved. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that Jesus loves you, right? You don't have to go to a place called hell. This message is for you as well. Like you may be saying, well, I'm not sure I believe in hell. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or you believe it. It doesn't change it one bit. Like I can walk out of here. I loved, I was in a Bible study class this morning and the teacher was talking about the colors of marker on the screen and, and one color was green and one color was orange and one color was uh, purple and the other color was black and, and uh, kind of pointed to the purple one and said, well, this one really needs to be red. And I said, well, it is red for me. That's my truth. <laughs> Isn't that funny though? That's what we do a lot of times when it comes to God's word. We say, I don't believe it. That's not my truth. It doesn't change it one bit because it's God's truth. Yeah. See, there's, there's, a bunch, there's a bunch of verses in here that make my toes curl. And I'm the pastor. So I know this is a difficult, a difficult thing to consider this morning, but I pray that you'll be open-minded about it. By the way, if we don't believe that hell exists, then I would assert that we really don't believe the God of this Bible. Because you see, he has a lot to say about hell and so for those who believe in hell let me give you some information real quick you may want to take out 
uh, your phone or take a picture. For those who actually believe in hell, there are typically four views of hell. There's the literal view of hell uh, that speaks of the images being literal. Uh, there's the metaphorical view of hell. And when we talk about metaphorical view, we're talking about images that we see in Scripture are actually grabbing at some of the worst things possible in order to describe hell. However, a metaphorical view of hell is trying to communicate a message, but it, it essentially says that the images that we see are not to be taken literally. So do you understand what that is? So you have the literal view, you have the metaphorical view, you have the annihilation view, which basically just says, hey, when we die, we die. When we die, we die, and that's it. And then there's the purgatorial view, which speaks of God having this cleansing fire, so to speak, and that uh, he's going to use it based upon how good you lived or how bad you lived. By the way, your goodness doesn't get... My goodness, our goodness doesn't get us to heaven. But a purgatorial view says that there's going to be this type of fire that God uses to cleanse us and to purge us, if you please, of all of our wickedness so that one day we'll be brought into uh, heaven after that fire. And so those are typically the four views uh, that people take when considering hell. But here's what I want us to do. I don't want to listen to what the world has to say. I want us to kind of look at what Scripture has to say. Is that okay? Amen. All right. So in the Old Testament, I know you guys are super excited this morning. So in the Old Testament, there's typically one word that's used to kind of uh, uh, translate it into hell. And that word is sheol. And it's often used here. You see it on the screen. It actually means the world of the dead, the grave uh, hell or a pit. And, and so there are some times that it's used uh, in the Old Testament that you might say, well, that doesn't really point me to uh, uh, a really a belief of hell, but this is the word that is used in the Old Testament, Sheol. When we get to the New Testament, there's actually three words, three Greek words that are used, and every one of them, you may not have known this before this morning, but every one of them are translated as the word hell in English. And so let's look at them. The first word is the word Hades, which some of you may be uh, familiar with. And Hades is a place of incarceration for departed souls. That's what it literally means. It's a place where wicked, where the wicked reside and are punished. The next word that we have in the New Testament is Tartaru. And it actually comes from another Greek root word. It's actually the word Tartarus. And it is only found once. It's only found once in Scripture. And here's what it is. The word literally means to incarcerate in eternal torment. It actually says the deepest abyss of the word we just referenced, which is Hades. Now, the one time that it is used, it is used in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, notice what Scripture says. It says, God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down... To hell. It's speaking of the deepest abyss of Hades, the deepest abyss, in other words, of the place of incarceration. This is where God cast his angels that sinned, watch what it says, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. That's what scripture says, folks. You know what? That verse, here's the hard truth that verse is just as true. As for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, many times I think we're not really, we, we don't understand or we don't have an answer when people ask us, what do you say about hell? 
And then we say, well, 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 you know, God is a God of love. I don't want to talk about hell. But listen, we have to have an answer of the hope we have. And we have to be able to point people to the truth of Scripture. And this is one of those times. Finally, the word that we see, uh, the last word is this word Gehenna in Scripture. It is the name for the uh, place of everlasting punishment, i.e. hell. It's the eternal dwelling place of all those who have rejected Jesus and those who have died in rebellion to God and God's grace. So it's the, the, it's, it's the resting place of those who say, no thank you, Jesus, no thank you, God. Those who hold the truth in unrighteousness, this is what it's speaking of. Now in Scripture, what you need to know, and this word is pretty important, this word is actually used 12 times in the New Testament. And out of the 12 times it is used in the New Testament, 11 of those times are literally quoted by, you guessed it, Jesus Christ himself. This is the word that he used most often when speaking of this place called hell. And it's an interesting word. And it is a word that would have been very, very familiar to his listeners of that day because the Greek word actually literally refers to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Ben-Hinnom, okay? And it's a place just outside of the city of Jerusalem, and it dates back to 750 B.C. You may remember uh, the wicked King Ahaz. King Ahaz, here's the importance of it, and you're going to see this in a minute, so just stay with me. Don't change the channel. The reason this is an important word, Gehenna, is because King Ahaz, in this time, he decided um, that he was going to participate in pagan worship as well. And one of the things that the pagans were doing at that time is they were uh, offering human sacrifices. And so you know what Ahaz does? He actually sacrifices his sons. And so this is the place, the valley of Ben-Hinnom, Hinnom, this is the place where they went to make human sacrifices. And this continued on and on. By the way, uh, Ahaz's uh, son uh, continued uh, the practice as well, uh, and uh, uh, Manasseh, and then also his grandson, Amnon, he continued the same thing. So you got Manasseh doing the same thing. I almost said Manassas. They were doing the same thing. Uh, but Manasseh and Amnon were doing the same thing. After Amnon was killed, does anybody remember who becomes king? A little child. A little child by the name of Josiah. And it was Josiah, a little child. A little child who said, no, it's not going to be the way things are. We're going to get rid of idolatry. We're going to get rid of pagan worship. This valley of Ben-Hinnom is going to no longer be used for such practices. And so you know what the little boy Josiah does? He turns this valley outside of Jerusalem into a dump. And this is where they take all the trash. This is where they take all the garbage. This is where they take all of, all of the criminals who were killed and hung for their crimes. And they dump the bodies there. This is where the sacrifices have been made. And the reality is they burned the trash and they burned everything that was there. And so when Jesus later talks about the smoke of their torment arising up forever and ever and they had rest day nor night, it would have been a vivid picture for the people of his day who were thinking back to this valley of ben he know. And thus we have this word, Gehenna, in Scripture. Oh, is hell a real place? Oh, my gracious, it's all through Scripture. And so with that in mind, I'm not going to take a long time in this passage, but if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. 
In Luke chapter 16, as you're turning, the passage continues to be the subject of theological debate. And I'm just going to be really transparent with you. There are some, many who say this, this account in which we will read is a true, uh, accurate, historical account. And there's others who say that this is a parable. Now, on one hand, those who say it's a true, actual account, uh, the evidence for that uh, would be that this is not labeled as a parable. It also, the evidence for it being a true historical account, is the fact that Jesus never gave anybody a name in his parables. And yet there is a name of somebody we will read about in this story. Also, in evidence for it being a, huge, a true historical account is the fact that parables were often a true, uh, a, a, a spiritual truth with an earthly illustration or an earthly story. And this story that we read is literally a spiritual truth with no earthly metaphors attached to it. On the other side, those who would sit around and say, hey, it's a parable. And the reason that they typically say it's a parable is because if you look in Luke chapter 14 and 15 before this, Jesus is actually sharing some parables. And so the debate continues. Now, you and I may disagree on whether it's a parable or whether it's a true historical account, but there can be no confusion about the truth that we're about to read of this passage and exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage himself because this text actually teaches us about the ramifications of one's rejecting of God and their separation, their torment, and the fact that their eternal destination cannot be remedied, watch this, after the fact. So whether you walk out of here today and you say, it's a parable to me, God bless you, you can't change the truth. If you walk out of here and say, it's a historical truth, I don't even know why he talked about a parable. You cannot walk out of here without knowing that this truth is exactly what Jesus was talking about. The rejection of God, the separation from God, and the fact that someone calling out for God's mercy after the fact it will not be remedied after death. And so with that being said, look with me at verse number 19 and following. Verse number 19, what a rich passage of text. And in my Bible, it's in red, so this is Jesus speaking. And he says, there was a certain rich man. This, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at the gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and they licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Remember the picture of Gehenna. And in hell, notice what Jesus says, and in hell he lift up his eyes, speaking of the rich man being in torments. And he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham. He says, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. And likewise, Lazarus, the evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, 
and neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, this is the rich man, he says, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers or five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one, watch this, how appropriate. He says, But if one went unto them from the dead, they would repent. If somebody would rise from the dead, they would repent. And he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to what the word of God has to say is what Jesus is saying here, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Oh, listen, can I tell you that Jesus has risen from the dead, amen? He's not here, he has risen indeed, right? And all we have to go by is the word of God. And so if you're here this morning, we have the word of God and the spirit of God that draws men and women and young people unto himself today. Oh, Jesus has already risen. We don't need anybody else to rise from the dead. Oh, my friends, obviously this text reveals a number of things about the rich man. Look at verse 24. We, first of all, we know he's a religious man. He's a Pharisee, no doubt, because immediately he calls out to Father Abraham. Obviously not God in this text, but he's calling out to Father Abraham. And so this reminds us that this guy would have been a Jewish man filled with religiosity. That's what the Pharisees were. They were filled with all type of religiosity. And so what I can tell you and what you can surmise from this passage is that he might have been filled with religion. And the fact of somebody who's filled with religion is they tend to know a lot about God. Have you ever met somebody who knows a whole lot about God? But the reality is from this text, we're reminded that he didn't know God. You see what I'm saying? He knew all about God. He was a Pharisee. He calls out on Abraham. He knew a lot about God, but he didn't know God. And so he is separated. It's funny, as I was reading it this week, it reminded me of those, those Pharisees in John chapter 8. You remember in John chapter 8, Jesus says, hey, listen, listen, I'm giving you the truth. And, and you get near the end of John chapter 8, he says, There's, here I'm giving you the truth of the word. And he says, hey, the truth is going to set you free. You remember the Pharisees? In verse number 33 of John chapter 8, here's what they say. They say, we be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to anyone. We don't need your word. We don't need your truth. We're already free because we're in Abraham. And so in other words, I think like these men of John chapter 8, this guy, he actually felt like, hey, I'm a Jewish man. I'm safe and secure. Can I tell you that your heritage, your ethnicity, your race, your goodness, your good looks, your wealth does not get you to heaven. And this man was confused about it. He says, Father Abraham, he calls out, he says, Hey, what, what's, what's happening here? I'm a Jewish man. How did I end up here? Do you know I believe that's going to be the lot for many people one day? They're going to be like, I knew all about God. I studied his word. I knew who he was. I knew who the son of God was. I knew all about what the Holy Spirit does and doesn't do. And yet there's going to be a time when Jesus will look and say, Depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity, for I never knew you. Oh, listen, this man also, if, if, he's, if he knows God, one thing's for sure, he lacks compassion. 
And yet, see, that's inconsistent as well because, see, God is a God of love. He loved us first. He proved his love to us. But here's what I see. Right away, you see that this man who is late, he's got some friends because, see, this guy is a lame guy, so he can't walk, right? He, he, he's either had foot surgery or something. He's not able to walk, right? Pardon the little personal pun there. Uh, he's not able to walk. And so he has some good friends who actually lay him at the gate of a rich man, thinking that the rich man might actually reach out and show a little bit of compassion to him. And yet he does nothing for this man. In fact, his actions remind me of the priest and the Levite from Luke chapter 10 who passed on by the guy who had been beaten, stripped, and left for dead in the ditch. You remember the story of the good Samaritan? It was only the Samaritan that came and did anything good. And from the first verse, first couple of verses of this passage, I'm reminded that this man had no compassion at all. But yet John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 17, the Bible says, But whoso hath this world's good, and see his brother have need, and shut up his bowels, or his heart of compassion from him, it says, How dwelleth the love of God in him? And so it's inconsistent that this man would have arrived in eternity with God because he had no compassion. Obviously, he had no relationship with God. He was living large, as you please. He had a significant home. In fact, he lived in a gated community of one. See, the scripture doesn't tell me he lived in a gated community of more than himself, but it says there was a gate to his home. He lives in a gated community. He had fine clothing, the Bible says. He feasted daily. In fact, if you look at verse number 19, look, it says, uh, there's this word in my Bible, it says sumptuously. That actually, it says he fared sumptuously every day. That word sumptuously actually means that his wealth was on display for all to see. He was wearing purple linen, purple uh, fine linens and everything. And so it was on display for everyone to see. And sadly, though, his identity was only in his wealth and in his family heritage. Lazarus, on the other hand, is poor, he's sick, and he's hungry. And if you look here uh, in, in, back in our text in Luke uh, 16, look at uh, verse number 21. Here's a, a miserable picture of his condition in verse 21. It says that the wild street dogs came and licked his sores. He has no ability to run or to get up or to move away from them. However, aside from the rich man's wealth and all the things that he had and Lazarus' physical and financial and otherwise condition, that's all fluff. It's all fluff, folks. The main point of this passage, the main point of this passage is to highlight the reality of eternity with God and the reality of an eternity without God. And that's what we find here. Just in this passage alone, look with me. Just in this passage alone, we find Jesus. Remember, Jesus is speaking. He reveals hell is a place of torment. In fact, I didn't even put it in my notes, but if you look at verse 14... The Bible says there are flames that are present there as well. So I know there's a big date. Well, a uh, big debate. Is hell a place of fire and brimstone? Is the fire really real? Because it says it's a place of darkness. And if there was fire, you'd be able to see. Not the hottest fire, you wouldn't. I remember hearing this years ago. The hottest flame is not the yellow flame or the orange flame or the blue flame. The hottest flame is the black flame. You cannot, you cannot even see 
in that flame. But it says here in verse 24 that flames are present. It's a place of torment. Look also, it's a place beyond mercy. Look at verse 24. He cries and says to Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's praying. He's crying out to God, in other words, for mercy. But he's a little too late, isn't he? Verse 24 also tells me it's a place of thirst. He actually wants, wants his tongue to be cooled because of, of, of this place that he's in. It's a place of remembering. What's interesting to me is he obviously knew who Lazarus was, but we never find him talking to Lazarus. We never find him referencing Lazarus in this story until he's in hell. He remembers Lazarus' name now, doesn't he? The guy who wanted something from him, see how the tables turned? See, Lazarus was laid at his gate full of sores. And he was just asking for a few crumbs of food that he might be able to live. And yet in hell the table is turned. He calls out on Lazarus. He says, come help me. He says, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger, verse 24, in water and cool my tongue. So it's a place of remembering. It's a place of separation there's a great gulf fix there. It's a place of consciousness as verse 27 and following talks about. It seems that our soul is keenly aware of its separation from God. Can I tell you I believe that what Jesus here is saying is true. I believe our soul is going to have a conscience of its separation from God and his mercy and grace. Oh, listen, look at verse 27. The rich man says, I pray thee, send him to my father's house. This man breaks out in prayer in hell. Oh, listen, and, some, and, and I'm going to get to it in a minute, so I don't want to divulge too much, but some people talk about God being a hateful God because of a place of hell. Do you know I read a commentary the other day. Someone had a different look on it and said, God is actually still gracious because he allowed someone to make that decision they, they go to hell on their own. He doesn't send anybody to hell. And we'll look at it here in just a second. I thought it was an interesting comment that God was still a God of grace even in this moment. But if you go through scripture and other places in God's word, hell is depicted as a place of damnation. That's fun in Matthew 23 and 33. A place of darkness, 2 Peter 2 and 4, as I already read to you. A place of everlasting fire. In uh, Matthew 25 and 41, and we'll look at that in just a second. And actually, Mark 9, 48 suggests that the fire will never, ever be quenched in a place called hell. Is, place, is hell a real place? Hey, by the way, how many verses do we need? How many verses would you say that you need to be convinced that hell is a real place? Do you only need one? Do you need 10? Do you need 20? Because we could go on and on all day with verses of scripture that point to the reality of a place called hell. Oh, listen, it says that it's a place of everlasting punishment. Matthew 25, 46, and John 3, 36. It's a place of no rest, day nor night. Revelation 14, 11. It's a place of everlasting destruction away from God's presence, as 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 indicates. And whenever we talk about the darkness, the everlasting fire, the punishment, and other aspects of hell, the question always comes back to, and here's what I was getting to a minute ago, is this is the question that I hear all the time. How could a loving God... How could a loving God send or allow anyone to go to a horrific place of torment called hell? The answer is he doesn't. We send ourselves. You say, well, where, where, why? hell's real. I mean, what was it created for? 
Turn with me to Matthew 25. I want you to see one verse. Matthew 25. I want you to see one verse. See, he doesn't send us to hell. He's not in the business of sending people to hell. Lest we twist and, and listen, you can get in scripture and twist it all you want. But he doesn't send anyone to hell. In Matthew 25 and verse 41, look at it. It says, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. Watch what it says. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not prepared for you. Hell is a real place, but it was not set up or established or set out as a place for you and I to go. If we go... We go of our own accord. You see, God has loved us and offered us forgiveness to whosoever will, the Bible says. He doesn't want anyone to go there. In fact, Scripture actually says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9, it tells us that our Lord is not slack concerning His promise. There are some who count it that way, but He says He's not slack concerning His promise. As some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, we could spend all day in this passage of Luke chapter 16, but the reality is this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 2 says this. It says, there's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. I got news for you. Unless you're breathing when Jesus returns, you and I will one day... Pass away from this life. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it takes it a step further. It says, and it is appointed unto men once to die. I just said, there will be a time that you and I will die unless we are alive when Jesus returns, okay? Man, wouldn't that be something? Man, I try to make all kind of noises thinking about what that would be like. The dead in Christ rising and then, man, can you imagine? The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And so from those two verses alone, we know that there is a one time, one day to be born. There's one time to die, one time to stand, and there will be one time to answer. James 4 and 14 says, What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So what does that mean? You're like, Pastor, what does that mean? A time to be born, a time to die. Uh, it's appointed unto men once to die. And what does all this mean? It means that hell is just as real as a place called heaven. And I pray that you understand that. I pray that you will grasp the significance and the severity of what we're talking about. This rich man... Is, is eternally separated. He begins a prayer meeting in hell for Lazarus, the guy he ignored in his whole life, to go back to his house because now he's actually concerned about his brothers at his dad's house. And he's like, listen, I don't want my brothers to come to this place. He becomes a soul winner in hell. He's like, go, go tell my brothers. I don't want, he says, I love my brothers, my earthly brothers so much that I don't want them to come to this place. And see, I know my brothers, and so they're banking on the fact that they are Jewish. They're banking on the fact that they are uh, considered of Abraham. See, they're banking on the fact that they think that they've never been in bondage to any man, and so they don't need the truth. They think they're free already, and so he says, please, send them and tell my brothers. 
because I don't want them to come here. Well, listen, hell is just as real as heaven, but that shouldn't scare us. And folks, it's not been my intention at all. On the contrary, on the contrary, hell's reality should remind you and I of the greatest news that has ever been presented to humanity. And that's the good news that Travis shared last week. When Jesus met up with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 and in verse number 10, you remember Jesus concluded, he said, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Why? Because I love them. I am a God of love. And so I got off of my throne. I took off my royal robes. I was born of a virgin. I've lived a sinless, spotless life. And I'm willing to lay down my life for you, Zacchaeus. I'm willing to lay down my life for all those that as I look out and I'm moved with compassion on those in the harvest field. And so Zacchaeus, you need to know that I've not come to condemn the world as John 3, 17 says. I've not come to condemn the world, but I've come that through me the world might be saved. Oh, because of God's amazing grace and his unexplainable mercy, we don't have to spend one second. Is that even a thing? Is that a thing? No. Thank you. I had to phone a friend over here. We don't have to spend one second in a place called hell. Oh, please remember this. The rich man was not in hell for being rich. You know, I tell the people, if you're rich financially, just remember the CRF, the Corcoran Relief Fund. It's okay to smile in God's house. In fact, it's okay to smile when we're talking about hell because you don't have to go there. The rich man wasn't in hell because he was rich. The rich man in this passage of scripture was in hell because he refused to listen to the word of God and God himself and he rejected what God was offering. Lazarus was not in heaven because he was poor. He wasn't in heaven because he was lame or because the dogs licked the sores all over his body. He was in heaven because there was a point in time in Lazarus' life where he believed God and trusted God. And the same is true for you and I. Listen, if you're here today and you're saved, all of this information from hell should cause you to do one thing and one thing first and foremost is to give God the glory. Listen, if you're going to boast in anything, Galatians chapter 6 tells us to glory in the cross of Christ. But after you get done glorying in your salvation, if you're saved and you're headed to heaven and you know that you'll never spend a second in hell, it ought to cause you to want to share this truth with somebody you know who needs to hear it. Every one of us. The rich man became conscious of his brother's souls, remember? But he became conscious of their soul's destination one day too late. Most of us, I would dare say, have family members who need Jesus. Anybody in here have a family member or a friend? Listen, the camera won't get you online. Like, I don't, I don't want to raise my hand. Because the camera might pick me up and my brother may be watching. Most of us have family or friends who need Jesus. Romans chapter 13 and verse number 11 tells us, and that knowing the time, 
and that knowing the time, it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. We don't have a, a, a blank check on today or even tomorrow. Proverbs eleven thirty says, The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Oh, listen, we ought to be sharing the love and the truth of Jesus Christ with people, knowing that there is a place called hell so that they never go to that place. And if you know you're here today and you say, say I'm going to be real quiet right now. If you're here and you know that you are without Christ, you know that you are not in Christ as of this second. What I want you to know is that the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God are saying to you today from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 2 that now, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't put off tomorrow what you know you need to do today. If the Word of God has resonated in your heart and the Spirit of God is drawing you to this point of salvation, listen, your answer is yes, Lord, yes. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There comes a point when we either believe that verse or we don't. We're either going to call upon the name of the Lord or we're not. Jesus said it this way in John 5 and 24, he said, what I said then is still true today. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Oh, what an amazing promise from God's word. And then I want to share this with you because I know a lot of people say, well, I, okay, I hear what you're saying. I guess I kind of sort of believe that there might be, Pastor, a place called hell. And I hear what you're saying. Jesus died so that I don't have to go there. I want you to listen to what 1 John in chapter 5 and verse number 11 and following say. And this is the record. This is the record is what John writes. And this is the record that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son, speaking of Jesus, he that hath the son, i.e. Jesus, has life. And he that has not the son of God, i.e. Jesus, has not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the son of God that you may hope so. That you might know. No, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the son of God. Listen, if you know you need Jesus... Here in just a second, I'm going to ask some, some people who are willing to do this, maybe some retired pastors, some other leaders, Sunday school leaders and others. I'm going to ask people to come and be down front. And if you know that you need Jesus in this place today, can I tell you something? We're going to, we're going to have every head bowed and no one looking around here in just a second. If you know that you need Jesus, because it's not about embarrassing anybody, but if you know you know in the bottom of your heart you're not sure, maybe you're 99% sure, Listen, you need to know that you have eternity with Jesus. Don't be headed for a I don't know. If you're here and you know or you're not sure about your eternal situation, I'm asking you a serious question right now. Would you be willing to let somebody pray with you? Would that be too much to ask? Would you be willing to let somebody pray with you or maybe even continue to show you from God's word? what the Bible has to say, what God has to say 
about how much he loves you and how much he doesn't want you to spend one second in an awful place called hell? Would you be willing to do that? Oh, listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I pray you'll do that. Listen, if you're watching online and you say, uh, I'm not sure I know Christ as my Savior, would you be willing to send me a text? Would you be willing to send me an email or call us here in the church office so that I might be able to talk with you and be able to pray with you and to share the Word of God with you? I remember this story one time of hearing an unbeliever who once asked a Christian this. He said, suppose you learn, Christian, that there is no heaven. To which the Christian calmly responded, suppose you learn there is a hell. Based on the authority of God's word, I can assure you that hell is real. But also based on the authority of God's word and what Christ has done for us, I can assure you that he doesn't want you to go there. What will you do with this information? Will you make use of it? It's not a popular message. It's not a fun thing to get up and to be able to share from God's word some thoughts about a place called hell. But I can tell you this. God loves you so much that he wanted this message to be preached today. And I love you so much that I was obedient to preach this message today. Where are you, sir, ma'am, young person? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you sure? Are you confident? Are you, are you 100% sure that you're headed for heaven? If not, I want to ask you, don't walk out of this place with allow, without allowing us to pray with you, without allowing somebody to be able to show you from God's word. Maybe, maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you and you say, listen, I'm, I'm at least opening, open to hearing what you have to say. I'm going to ask you, as I said, as I begin to pray, I'm going to ask some leaders to come forward and just be hanging out down here. But I'm going to ask you to do a bold thing. See, we live in a, we live in a society, to be honest, where we get so scared of all kind of silly stuff. There's not a person in this room who will put you down for coming to pray with somebody. In fact, if they are believers in this room, they ought to be right behind you coming to pray with you. Listen, we've got it all wrong. We've allowed the world, the flesh, and the devil to confuse us. Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so, I pray that you will do business with the Lord while He's near. If you're a believer... I'm going to ask you to make a bold move. I'm going to ask you to either get on your knees right where you're at or come and make use of this altar and ask God to fill you with some holy boldness. Say, God, help me to, help me to live today and tomorrow with the reality of hell in mind, with the reminder of hell's reality as I go back to the workplace, as I go back to my home, as I go back in to uh, my neighborhood or whatever. Help me to live, not to go out and bark at people, not to scream at people, but to go back and to be willing to go back to the messages a couple weeks ago, to be driven by love, to be driven by the truth, to share the word of God with people, as Travis said last week, who are lost and need to hear.
Father, I pray as we enter into this time of invitation, as, as leaders are coming forth, willing to pray with others, God, I pray that you will have your hand upon this invitation. God, I pray that you will do what only you can do. Certainly, we leave it in your hands. God, I pray for believers that we might be, that we might be energized, that we might be called once again to go out into our Jerusalem and into our Judea and, and into Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world that we might be energized to carry the love and the truth of Jesus to people that we know still need to hear the gospel. Is hell real? Yes, Lord, I believe that it is real. And so, Lord, I pray that you will have your will in your way that those who still need Jesus would be bold enough to come right now. Don't even wait for the time to singing. Every head bowed. Those that would be bold to come and to pray with others, they would step out and be willing to do that. Lord, that you would be honored and glorified by their obedience and by their step of faith. Father, I love you and praise you and give you the glory for what you'll do in the next few moments of time. Lord, we give you that glory because of Jesus and what he did on the cross through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection to give us a living hope that will last forever and ever and ever. Lord, we praise you and we praise your holy name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.